Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open those to Esther, the book of Esther. This morning we're going to be studying chapter 2, verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 3. So Esther 2, verse 19, begins us like this. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the, the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, 
The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. The letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that we're going to see here that you preserve your people. It is not by man's wisdom or might, but by the Spirit of the living God that anything truly divine will happen in our hearts and in our lives this morning. So please, in your mercy, give the Holy Spirit. Give the Holy Spirit. For those who are lost, turn on the lights. Help them to see the grace and the glory of Jesus to save them. And for your people, please encourage our hearts. Give us courage to stand boldly for you in the midst of this world. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. In 1521, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther uh, was standing before the Diet of Worms for what he'd come to believe and written concerning the conflict between God's word and the Catholic Church. And who knows, uh, but his very life may have been on the line in the continued affirmation of his biblical convictions. So given opportunity to recant, or else, he responds this way. He says, quote, My conscience is captive to the word of God, as opposed to contradictory popes and councils. He said, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. We start here for two reasons. One is that we need more of what Luther said then, today. As Christians, Meaning to be Christian, we need more courage to stand upon the rock of Scripture. We need more courage to have and to hold biblical convictions in a world that is ideologically antagonistic to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one. And second is that we should aim to live as well as we speak. Toward the end of his life, uh, Luther 
sadly wrote a tract expressing an improper intolerance of unbelieving Judaism. Such that even one of his greatest biographers, Roland Baton, wrote this, one could wish Luther had died before ever this tract was written. And so we should just quickly cancel him, right? That's what we do today. I would say no, I don't think so. I think we should approach Luther like we would anybody else, as likewise sinners, saved by grace, but with a spiritually discerning eye. Beloved, if we can't learn from people because of their sins, we can't learn from anybody, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including each one of us here this morning. Moses murdered a guy. We realize that? David abused Bathsheba. Peter denied Jesus, cut a guy's ear off. Paul was a terrorist, you see? If we're going to do this, the only person we can ever learn from is Jesus. But God's given us His inerrant Word featuring fallible people that we might lean into Him and learn righteousness from the good and the bad and the really ugly. Well, I'm glad the Holy Spirit and the God of all grace did not cancel Mordecai and Esther after verse 18 of chapter 2. Because today I think we find something that begins really a Godward trend in both of them. And by it, we're to learn to bring our feet to meet the faith we profess. We're to learn to stand for a God in life who's stood in for us on the cross. And so, chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, we come to a fortuitous seed. If you look there. Uh, five more years have passed between Esther's ascension to the throne and the main event in our text. All is as we left it a week ago. Uh, ties to God, the God of Israel, are still being concealed here. That's about to change. That's about to change. Somewhere in the middle of it all, for some reason we don't exactly know, the virgins are gathered again, if only to remind us of the king's destructively prodigal heart and to prep the soil for a seed. What do I mean? Well, as the poor souls are being gathered, we find Mordecai, verse 19, sitting at the king's gate. Which means, as scholars tell us, he was some kind of officer of the king, apparently. And that's where they did business, at the king's gate. And as he did, it appears the virgins go by, and amid all the hustle and bustle of that, you have two eunuchs who guarded the entrance to the king's private residence, and they think it's safe to vent a bit about the king. And as they did, venting turned to anger. And anger blew straight past self-control to kill mode. Bigthin and Teresh were done with Ahasuerus. But their doing just happened to be done within an earshot of our guy, Mordecai. So now, let me ask us, knowing what we know of Ahasuerus, uh, if we were made privy to this plan, what would you have done? I mean, mightn't the world be a 
better place without a king like Ahasuerus? Might we just chalk this one up to the goodwill of God? In the days of Hitler, the Christian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was actually faced with such a dilemma. And we're told that he chose to join in the plan of assassination. What would you have done? What does Mordecai do? Well, when he could have simply kept silent and let providence run its course, he doesn't let providence run its course without him. Uh, He does not omit responsibility here. We see that Mordecai acts. And with the life then of this pagan king in his hands, he brings to light what was spoken in darkness. He tells the queen, who in the name of Mordecai tells the king, who makes an inquiry which reveals the truth and results in the king's two secret service agents being hung on stakes of wood. And so Mordecai saves the king's life. And it's recorded in the king's book and in the king's presence. And our expectation then is to hear of Mordecai's promotion. That's where we sit. But before we go ahead, let me ask again. Brothers and sisters, are we inclined to do good even to the worst of people? If you were here for our study of 1 Peter, you should know very well that we are called to that. We're called to that. To do good to everyone as we find occasion. To live peaceably with all so far as it depends on you. To love our enemies as our Lord Jesus has done. Cross-bearing is Christ's kind of truly good life. You remember? It's doing the right thing even if for it you end up suffering wrong. That's pleasing in God's sight. We don't seek the praise of man, but of God, right? If it's the other way around, we will never be able to truly believe in and follow Jesus in this world. It took Him to a cross. We won't put up with that. So we need to be squared away here. Whether or not a king takes note of the good and grace that we show, Christ does. And that should be enough to do it. Well, the soil's been prepared. And though we can't see it yet, a fortuitous seed has been planted that will save not only Mordecai's life, but every Jewish life in the known world. And thus, even the life of Christ. And so, beloved, yes, even our own life to all eternity. Let's not leave this moment quite yet. Mordecai's done the king good. He's proven gracious. He saved that which the king loves most of all, his own life. So, we expect a good return. We expect a good return. We expect, as I said, promotion. But what we get instead is negligence and time that buries the seed and puts it temporarily out of sight. Mordecai is not promoted. And what's worse, presumably in Mordecai's place, a devil of a man named Haman is promoted to the second highest office in the world. His name in Hebrew means wrath. Again, fitting. 
And what's more, he's introduced to us as the Agagite. What is that? Okay, well, Agag is the name of an Amalekite king in 1 Samuel 15. And the Amalekites, if you don't know, were the first enemies of Israel after they had been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. They had set out for Canaan land, the promised land, and without provocation, Amalek attacked. But God won, and He told Israel, never forget. Never forget what they've done. And so Amalek is a a corporate type of the chief enemy of God's people, which is, at the end of the day, the devil. Right? And all other enemies follow, as it were, in their footsteps, seeking, however unawares, to destroy the lineage of Christ and to destroy the promise of God in Him. If we just end the people, then we can end the promise. And though God wins every time, and will win this time, by having a Jewish man who happens to be the queen's father in the right place at the right time, that prideful fiend refuses to leave the sovereign victory march of God alone. Recall our call to worship. I told you to take note of this. Numbers 24-7. Israel's king shall be higher than Agag. And his kingdom shall be exalted. Which brings us back to 1 Samuel 15. Where God commanded King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, including their king, Agag. You remember, Saul did not do it. He did not obey the Lord, and so Samuel had to come along and carry out what God had asked Saul to do. Well, look here. I didn't mention it a week ago, but now it's important. Haman is an Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, as the author later calls him. But from whom does Mordecai hail? Do you remember? He's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, of Benjamin, and whose daddy is Kish? Saul. Yes, good job. God does know how to weave an intriguing story. Here in Mordecai versus Haman, the family feud of family feuds is brought up. It's more than enmity between two people. It's the anti-Christian spirit of the whole world against God's covenant people and so against God Himself, which leads us to the straw that breaks this Jewish man's back. The final straw. He could have returned to Jerusalem. No, I like Susa. He could have aided Ezra and Nehemiah's revitalizing efforts. No, I prefer the business of this king. He might have raised Esther to be boldly Hadassah, remember? No, I'll just let her wrestle with that. He should have told her, don't hide the Lord, be his light. No, conceal, compromise. But now, but now, he not only gets passed up for that promotion, an Agagite receives it. And then, as the kings commanded, all his officials were to bow down and pay homage to this Agagite. 
And we can hear the cracking of the straw. And though his fellows tried to talk him out of it, this man who had lived a life on the slippery slope says, I cannot do it anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. Everyone else may bow down to him, but here I stand. Now, it's true. Some have seen ulterior motives in Mordecai, greed, jealousy, pride. And no doubt, as it is with us, even our best in this world is yet some part stained by sin. Sin is trickier and stickier than we tend to think. But still, real good can be done. And, in my opinion, while Mordecai may have refused to honor Haman for a mix of reasons, the author of Esther only but actually makes one reason explicit in the verse 4. He was a Jew. Yeah. So, it's not just a family feud. It's a faith family feud. Haman has brought out whatever was left of Mordecai's conviction. <laughs> now again, some then rightly run to 1 Peter 2 and, and Romans 13 and ask if Mordecai's done wrong by not honoring the one to whom honor was due. And I would just say honor does not necessitate compliance with what dishonors God. It doesn't demand the slaying of a conscience that's captive to God's word. Yes, give Caesar his, Jesus says, but don't give Caesar what belongs to God. And I'd add then the likelihood that what we may not be able to discern of Haman's demands, Mordecai and the author of Esther probably knew quite well. There's a clear link here between Haman and the lusts of Satan. You remember what Satan said to Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 9? If you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you the world. Something he could not give. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It seems to me there's a bit of that Holy Spirit here in Mordecai. And as that Holy Spirit is in you, are you prepared to stand for God and stand out for Christ, standing upon His Word in a world that will not stand for it? Suddenly, Mordecai is. And with his fellows, we wait to see if faith will stand over fury. And so if you can keep with my uh, awkward imagery here, we come to the fiery snowball. The fiery snowball. Picking up in verse 5. And there, after Mordecai's fellows brought the matter of his transgression to Haman, and the underlying reason for it, I think some kind of fidelity to God, Haman says... I need to see this travesty for myself. And so, here he comes. Everybody bows. And all pay him homage. He doesn't look at any of that. His eyes are fixed on the one who would not bow. 
And seeing it, we see the snowball effect of a cold and calculated heart that's been thumped off its perch atop Pride Mountain. Haman demands his honor. And in so doing, he disqualifies himself from it. For as Solomon said, humility comes before honor. The only thing in the wake of pride is what? Destruction. And as it relates to Haman, that will have a double meaning. Here it means he will act as a destroyer. And he not only again wants, he not only wants the head of Mordecai, he ultimately wants the head of Christ. That is, a head of Christ. He wants to exterminate all the Jewish people in all the kingdom, which was essentially all the world at that time. And so let's just forget for a moment all that's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. God's whole plan of redemption rides on this set of events in Esther chapter 3 and moving forward. All of it. And again, beloved, we then who are in Christ are now very much in the story. In these verses, our eternal destiny and heritage is on the line. And so we move ahead. The fiery snowball picks up size and steam. We see here that Haman gathers his his mediums together to cast lots in order to choose his day of reckoning, which happens to fall on a day that is 11 months out. Here's the problem. The problem, as I'm sure drove him quite insane, is that he's only second in command. You're either the most powerful man in the room or you're nothing, Jafar said in Aladdin. Okay? He still needs the king's signet ring. And so crafty as he is, he goes to Ahasuerus, the gullible, and tells him there's a people causing a problem that it does not profit the king to keep around any longer. Notice, he does not name the people He says they all break the king's laws, though it was only Mordecai, and that on account of conscience. He then adds they are of no profit to the king, although the king's favorite girl is Esther. And Mordecai has just saved his life. And then preempting any kind of inquiry from the king, he appeals to the king's coffers, which had just suffered at the hands of Greece, 750,000 pounds of silver. 10,000 talents, which, by the way, Haman could not have had. No matter, no matter, give me your power, and I promise you the world, peace and profit and pleasure. And the king does. And as he does, all the power in the world is placed straight into the hands of Satan's wrath incarnate, Haman. And all God's people felt the quake. Two things here. I guess we should expect it by now. I just want to say, really, Ahasuerus? Like, really? Remember, at the beginning of the, of the text, when his life was in danger, immediate inquiry. Search out the truth. But when an entire ethnic group is on the line, nothing. He has a kingdom 
of people who are made in the image of God. But he loves no one more than he loves himself. And so listen, for the right price, genocide. Grace towards him has not made him gracious or just. What about you and I? Let me give you a for instance here. Brothers and sisters and friends, uh, there is a genocide occurring in our day. It's claimed over 60 million U.S. lives, 10 times more than the Holocaust. Are we speaking up for preborn children? It's happening right up under our noses. Are we standing against the actions of those who hold that might makes right, that lifestyle outranks life itself, and that generations of Americans should be legally destroyed in the name of peace and profit and pleasure? As Christians who have been saved from sin, death, and hell, and affirm the dignity of every human life with a heart and a hope to help every soul and life in need, let's be the farthest thing from what we see in the life of this king. Which brings me to something Timothy Kane perceptively notes. Squint hard enough, and don't you see the devil in Haman? What a liar. What a deceiver. What an empty promiser. What an enemy of God's people. Stop being deceived, Cain says. And I would just say, don't be so spiritually gullible. True, the world in his hands may not tolerate it, but come on, like, let's have some foundations. Let's gain a conscience. Let's own the faith. Let's grow in conviction. Let's get a Bible and actually stand upon it. Let's put that word into our heart and let's follow Jesus. And you say, the cross is there. And that's terrifying. That's true, it is. I just want to tell you, so too is all your joy and all your evidence of grace. It's right there in that path, following Jesus all the way to the cross. Satan promises us the world in order to drag us to hell. Jesus bore our hells to give us everlasting glory. Conviction or compromise? It seems we must discerningly decide every moment. Let's be ready and willing to go the way of truth and grace. Well, that brings us to really a frightening scene. Picking up in verse 12. It is hard to imagine the depth of evil in it. Chilling is probably a, a truer word than frightening. Scribes are called on the 13th day of the first month to draw up a multilingual edict in the name and seal of the king. And that edict called not just Haman's guerrilla forces, but all the normal citizens throughout the kingdom to participate in destroying, killing, and annihilating all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, 11 months down the road. And they were baited 
They were baited to this gruesome anti-Semitism by an appeal to things. Stuff. As one put it, after the little Jewish child was murdered, one would just step over their body and take the toy from their lifeless hands to hand it to their child. It is beyond disturbing. And see, as if it mattered, there's no explanation to the kingdom as to why they're to participate in this. They're just to be ready for this day of Haman's reckoning. The world, as it were, is to rid itself of God's elect people. And to add to the tremors, the edict that goes out, goes out on the eve of Passover. So as the Jewish people are preparing to hold a feast in celebration of redemption from Egypt, by the power and grace of God and the blood of the Lamb. A courier would have dropped by to drop off a letter decreeing their death. Talk about the need to believe in the promises of God. Talk about the need to be rooted in mercy past and future for the present. Talk about the need to have a rock-solid faith. Well, they'll have 11 torturous months to try and work it out. But while the decree goes out, and the Jews' rejoicing was turned to mourning, and the capital city was thrown into understandable confusion, watch this. The king and Haman sat down. They are entirely calloused to the horror. Even at, even at peace with their actions. They think they've gotten what they both want. They think they're atop the world. They think that they are in control, blind to biblical history. Shame on you, Haman the Agagite. They think they've won. And perhaps that people of God thought so too. And perhaps today, as we take stock of our society and the atrocities in the world, and particularly against Christianity, maybe we think so too. Well, beloved, the anti-Christian powers that be may sit down all proud and smugly at table, but we know the end of the story, even from the beginning. We know, as Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why? Because for all their plotting, there is no stopping God's decree about the global and eternal rule of His Savior King. These guys sit at table. So what? The Lord sits upon the throne of the universe. These guys are great at checkers. So what? The triune God is playing infinite D chess. 
Mordecai's sitting within an earshot of these assassins, and it's not an accident. It is not an accident, then, that his good deed is written down in a book. We're going to see that later on in the book of Esther. It is not on a personal whim that Mordecai takes his stand. We've already heard this. Our hearts are in the hands of God. He moves them wherever he wills. And what does Proverbs 16 say about casting lots? But that while we do cast it, it's every decision is from the Lord. Do we think the edict goes out on Passover Eve at random? Friends, God is so sovereign, he can use his enemy's evil to do his redeeming work. No doubt, God's people then thought, this is it, we're goners, that's the end of the road. Well, so appeared the first Pharaoh's policy of infanticide. So appeared that shore against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army pressing up against them. What are we going to do now? So appeared Herod's policy of infanticide early in the Gospels. And so appeared all the attempts that were ever made on the life of Jesus Christ culminating in His cross. He's died. It's over. But every time, every time, they proved rather to be pathways of salvation in the hand of God. As one put it, God saves His church strangely by providing surprising mercies when she expected nothing but ruin. And so he adds this important word. He says, God is to be trusted even when His providences seem to run contrary to His promises. In truth, they run together. His providence and His promises, they run side by side in stride for our final good. Now, that truth is sometimes as clear as a windshield in Louisiana's love bug season, as one put it. But let's just stop to think for a second. What an opportunity then just to take God at His word when things are clear as mud. What an opportunity then to practice a faith that is more precious than gold. What an opportunity then to be still and know that He is sovereign and almighty and righteous and gracious and true and working in our waiting. Eleven months are in front of Him. If He weren't, we're ultimately staring at the destruction of Christ in these verses. But last some time ago, while we all were under God's decree of death on account of our sins, right place, right time, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so, he lived a life of perfect standing with God. Against every temptation, Jesus said, Here I stand. Upon the Word of God, as the Word of God, He never slipped, He never stumbled, He only stood. And for it, the world hated Him. 
It would not tolerate him. It unleashed its Haman against him. It unleashed its wrath against him. It sold him out. And it didn't sell him out for 750,000 pounds of silver. 30 pieces will do. It hung him on a stake as a criminal of the state, though the only real reason was our own pride. And while suspended, we cast lots for His clothing who came to clothe us in His perfect righteousness. There on the cross, into the road, God was paving. God was saving. Jesus was being the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was proving to be our advocate against our Haman-like accuser. He was bearing the decree we deserved that we might gain the promise of eternal life. He was standing in for us that rather than ending us, we might sit at God's table and drink everlasting cheers to the edict it is finished. We are forgiven. We are reconciled. We have been saved. Unbelieving friends. Saving glory indeed. Saving grace is greater than the grip of sin. What Christ has done is enough to save the worst of sinners. Yes, even murderous turncoats as in our text. What was a thief on the cross if not that? Yes, even faithless compromisers. What was a tax collector like Matthew if not that? Yes, even terrorists aiming to wipe out the true people of God this very hour. What was the Apostle Paul, if not that? Friends, there is not a sinner alive God cannot save. Christ's work has done the job, and His resurrection proves it. He's the Jewish God-man God used to save all the world, if only you would turn from your sins and place your trust and your hope. In Him. Here, I want you to hear, there is a day of divine reckoning. Jesus is the only hope of salvation from it. Won't you hope in Him now? Beloved, as we have hoped in Him, what a rock we do have. Against the waves of every lie and every trial and threat. One who promises on God's sovereign grace, I will build my Church, and no matter how bleak things appear, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This week in study, uh, he certainly challenged and helped me to trust him more precisely in this. To trust him when providence seems to run contrary to his promises. And dear ones, let me encourage you, tis so sweet. To trust in Jesus. Just to take Him at His word. Just to rest upon His promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee. Precious Jesus, Savior, Friend. And I know that Thou art with me. Wilt be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved Him or and or, Jesus, Jesus, precious 
Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. And so, to say more often, here I stand. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your wonderful grace, your converting power, your sustaining might. As we have seen your glory in this text, please let it enter into our hearts and stick. Overwhelm us with joy. May you have all the glory as we come to sing again. In Jesus' name, amen.